I don't know about you, but I'm a little fuzzy this morning, kind of hard to wake up and get going. I think that green film that's on my car is also on my brain. It's the last Sunday of Lent, and we've been journeying together, looking inwardly at the reality of the ways that we fall short, the ways that we think and do and say things that are not right. We're looking at our sin, our shortcomings, our faults, our struggles, not to beat ourselves up, but in humility and with honesty in such a way that we look to Jesus as our hope and stay. That Good Friday becomes really good. And that Resurrection Sunday is the best celebration that we've had to date. And so a humble, honest look at our struggles, our suffering, our sin, our shortcomings is what makes the gospel so beautiful, what makes the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ so wonderful. And so as we sum up our Lenten journey, walking with Jesus, today we look at the problem of pain and the reality of suffering in our lives. Just a light little subject. And not one that is possible to do justice with in just a few minutes. But I've got to start off by saying, I don't like pain and suffering. In fact, I'm angry at pain and suffering because it hurts. And I find that a lot of my life is spent trying to avoid pain and suffering. Trying to negotiate the pain and suffering that I can't avoid and wondering what is the purpose of what I'm going through. And so as we look at Jesus this morning, I want us to, to look at Jesus through the particular pain and suffering that we have gone through or that we may be going through right now. And there's several ways that we experience pain and suffering. We experience physical pain and suffering. We experience emotional pain and suffering. We experience spiritual pain and suffering. And so I want to invite you just for a moment to reflect to think and best yet, write down what God stirs up in your heart this morning as we contemplate pain and suffering. Think about a time when you suffered physical pain. What was that like? What was going on? Jot that down. Think about a time you suffered emotional pain what was, what was that like? What was going on? Was there guilt? Was there shame? 
Was there betrayal? Was there loneliness? Was there rejection? Think about a time when you experienced and suffered spiritual pain. Do you know the desert? Do you know the darkness? That sense of feeling abandoned, feeling hopeless. This is the reality of our experience in life. And yeah, I would much rather avoid this, skip over this, not deal with this. But it is a significant way that God demonstrates his love for us. It's a significant question that we all have that God answers. It's a problem that's real, and we have a real God that solves it. But I get a little bit ahead of myself. Let me ask you this. When you're hurting, what helps? You want someone to send you a a list of things to do or do you want someone to show up and help? When you're hurting, do you want someone to, to test your resolve or do you want someone who's experienced what you're going through to sympathize with you, be an example for you and offer you comfort and guidance and strength? When it gets tough, Do you want someone to outline the sacrifices you need to make in order to achieve a a high enough level of morality? Or do you want someone to come alongside you and shower you with love and grow your character and build up your hope? When you're hurting, what helps? What is it that you need? As you think about your pain and your suffering, as you think about what has been, what is helpful to you, I want to pose this question. Does your suffering shape your understanding of God? Or does your understanding of God shape how you suffer? You know, there are a lot of ways that our culture attempts to negotiate pain. There are, there are a lot of narratives that we hear that are meant to help us respond in a healthy way to suffering. There are, there's a lot of confusion about what actually is right and, and what's more hurtful than helpful. Some say suffering is caused by our attachment to worldly things and that we bring suffering on ourselves and that we're solely responsible for mitigating our own suffering and that we can rise above suffering by not clinging to material objects or relationships. Have you heard that? That's Buddhism. Buddhism and Cultural nuances of Buddhism teach that suffering is a result of ignorance and the remedy is enlightenment. But does more knowledge really help? 
when we're hurting, when we're, when we're walking in the desert, when we're going through the dark night of the soul, how much more knowledge is enough? Others say that suffering is punishment for all the wrongdoing we've committed in this life and in past lifetimes, and that suffering can be overcome by charitable deeds which are stored up and credited to us as a happier life in the next life to come. Have you heard that? Have you heard cultural nuances and iterations of that? That's Hinduism, which explains suffering with the concept of karma, this mysterious moral law of cause and effect. But y'all, honestly, if suffering's always my fault, it compounds my guilt and my shame and my self-condemnation, especially if I'm suffering for something I don't even remember in a past life. Still others say that enduring pain Suffering loss is the way that we submit to the will of God. That suffering strengthens our goodness because it leads us to repentance and prayer and acts of sacrifice. And that God rewards those who passed the test of suffering and make the appropriate sacrifices for it. Have you, have you heard that or the cultural iterations of that? That's Islam. But when it boils down to it, how good is good enough? How many sacrifices do I need to make that will be sufficient for my own suffering and my own pain? And again, I gotta be honest. I'm selfish. I'm lazy. I really appreciate personal comfort, so I don't want to make any significant sacrifices for the sake of passing a morality test to prove that I'm worthy of paradise. That sounds exhausting to me. So is there a response to our pain and suffering that does not depend on us? Is there a way to understand and to respond and to walk through those dark nights, those difficult situations, those trials and tribulations and desert moments in life that isn't dependent on us or our our self-initiation or our self-enlightenment or our self-determination. We need help. We don't need more tasks. We need help. We don't need more formulas. We need mercy. We don't need more sacrifices. We need grace in our time of trouble. It's by 
grace and in love that the Father doesn't leave us abandoned in this problem. It's in his mercy and in his goodness and in his kindness that the Father doesn't expect us to go it alone and figure it out and do more to get better and make things right. It, it is the heart of our God that reveals to us that the problem with pain is rooted in the problem of sin. It is the story of God that helps us see that the reality of sin is what causes the reality of our suffering and therefore our understanding and response to our pain and suffering must be directly tied to God's understanding and response to sin which causes our pain and suffering. This is what distinguishes a relationship with God through Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit from religion. I'll, I'll never forget the first time my young life leader told me that Christianity is not a religion because religion is based on what we do to earn God's favor. But rather, Christianity is a relationship because it's based on what God has done to show us his favor. When you're hurting, what helps? You know what helps? Heaven's response to your hurt. That's what actually helps. Because as we sing, there's no hurt that heaven doesn't understand. And there's no hurt that heaven can't heal. And there's no hurt that isn't fully resolved in the hope of heaven. God's response to our pain and suffering is this. God himself becomes truly human and shows up in the midst of our pain and suffering. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the God-man, fully enters into the reality of our problem. And he personally experiences physical, emotional, and spiritual pain and suffering. Why? So that unlike climbing a mountain, unlike reading dispensation of fortune cookie wisdom, unlike formulas, unlike rules and laws, we have a God who can sympathize with us in every way and yet still remain God. And not only that, we have a God who becomes sin and pain and suffering for us. He not only empathizes with us in the midst of our trials, he takes all of our trials and the effects of our trials and the root of our trials upon himself 
and dies for it. That we don't have to. That we might live. One of uh, my Lenten resolutions, which I never started, which is now going to be my Easter resolution. <laughs> if I could give things up for Lent, can I take things on for Easter? If, I, if, I, if I'm giving my unrighteousness to Christ in Lent, can I take on his in Easter? <coughs> All right, Lord, help me with this. Um, I really want to read the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids out loud. Um, I know a couple of families that have done this. In fact, on my second honeymoon, you know, man and I went on two honeymoons. We went on our beach honeymoon uh, after we got married in May. And then I had a couple of, uh, of weeks left of vacation. So in August, we went to the mountains and went uh, backpacking and fly fishing. And we went with Jeff and Michaela Rouse. And um, the whole... The whole time, Jeff and I would go fishing during the day. Michaela and Amanda would sit by the lake, and they would read the Chronicles of Narnia out loud. And um, it's one thing to be at 11,000 feet fly fishing and enjoying the beauty of God and his creation and catching bigger fish than Jeff. <laughs> but it's another thing to have C.S. Lewis being read in the background. <laughs> so I want to I take... In an English accent from Michaela. That's right. Michaela, come up here. I, I, I love the scene in The Magician's Nephew where Diggory discovers the heart of Aslan who truly understands his sorrow. It's right here. Michaela, would you be willing to read this in an English accent no. for us. No! Well, you're already up here. Come on. Go from Start right here. This here. is Diggory. And then this is C.S. Lewis. Okay. And then this is Aslan. All right. <laughs> but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure Mother? Up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. Thank you, Michaela. <laughs> Lewis's metaphor of God as a majestic, tender-hearted lion is so beautiful. And this short picture captures 
God's response to our pain and suffering so beautiful. A majestic, tender-hearted God who wraps his arms of comfort around us, weeps right alongside with us in our pain, knowing our grief, sympathizing with our grief, and promising that our grief does not have the last word. The problem of pain and suffering is overcome by a person. Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, who not only sympathizes with us in our pain and suffering, but solves the problem that causes our pain and suffering, which is sin. They are directly related, and we can't respond to one without the other. And that's what we see in our gospel lesson this morning. Will you open with me to John chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. In your blue Bible, this is on page 905. How does Jesus respond to our pain and suffering? In the gospel of John to date, we have seen that Jesus knew poverty and obscurity. He knew what it was like to be threatened, to flee for safety, to feel displaced. He knew hunger and thirst. He knew weariness and temptation and the assaults of Satan. He knew intense opposition, manipulative politics, and the agony of betrayal by those closest to him. He even wept because of grief at the death of Lazarus. But nothing is severe as the pain that Jesus begins to endure in this moment as the promised suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. The scriptures teach us that Jesus <clears throat> endures three kinds of pain and suffering. Physical pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering, and spiritual pain and suffering. And that he fully endures all of the possibilities of suffering in order to be the full and perfect sacrifice, atonement for our sin. He does this in love for us and on our behalf. Look at verses 1 through 5. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, here's, here's the warning. This is the, the fine print on the bottom of this part of the message. Most of us don't like to go here. This is difficult to contemplate. 
This is really uncomfortable. It's why most times we don't go here. It's why most times this is skipped over in message series. We'd rather deny the reality of the pain and suffering that Jesus endures for our sake. We'd rather change the facts about what he does and why he does it. We'd rather recreate Jesus and our own image to make it more palatable to us. But the truth is that you can't make the good news better by watering it down. You can't make the good news better by taking away or changing or altering it so that it's more palatable or culturally digestible. So what we see in John 19 verse 1 is what Jesus begins to do. And as disturbing as it is, why this is so good for us. We see Jesus suffering in three ways. First, we see Jesus suffers physical pain. He's flogged. Now, how many of you have seen a scourging? A flogging? We haven't. Thank God. We've never seen a flogging, so it's hard to imagine the suffering that it involves. We do know that it's such a painful event that many people die from it without even making it to their crucifixion. And this is what happens. Jesus is tied to a post, his hands bound above his head in a manner that fully stretches out and vulnerably exposes his bare back, his butt, and his legs. That's how it begins. Which is really optimal for two torturers, one on either side. And what these torturers do is they take turns rhythmically lashing Jesus with an executioner's whip called a flagrum or a cat of nine tails, which is made with a series of long leather strips ruthlessly laced with sharp pieces of lead and glass and bone. And with each blow, these strips act like hooks, sinking deeper and deeper into the shoulders and the back and the butt and the legs and the feet. And once lodged in the flesh, that whip would be yanked back. And when it was yanked back, it'd rip out skin and it'd rip out muscles. And the more whipping that occurred, it'd rip out nerves and rip out tendons and even rip out pieces of bone, leaving the flesh to hang like ribbon. Jesus suffered physical pain 
Jesus suffered emotional pain. Maybe more awful than the pain of physical suffering is the pain of guilt that Jesus takes on and endures for us. Do you know the heaviness of guilt? The weight that comes over you when you realize and admit something that you've thought or said or done that isn't right, that's hurt you, that's hurt someone else. Do you know how terrible that feels? And you know, the more that we grow in the holiness of Christ, the more intense that feeling gets and the more we revile that feeling, that feeling of guilt. And taking on all of our guilt, past, present, and future, taking on all of the consequences of our guilt, of, of the whole world, would have been extremely emotionally weighty for Jesus. It, it, it would have been emotionally tormenting. And in his perfect, pure, holy soul, it would have been reviling to him. Jesus also endures the shame of our sin, the guilt of our sin, and the shame of our sin. And while the crown of thorns that we see here would have been physically painful, the mockery that it entailed would have been equally as devastating. Here was the king of the Jews, being beaten, spit upon, and insulted by Roman soldiers who take the symbol of royalty, the symbol of majesty, of honor, and turn it in to something degrading, used to make fun and belittle him. The irony is that it's a crown thorns. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, bringing evil and a curse upon the world, God declares, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth to you. So what's happening here in English liturgy, we call this dramatic irony, is that the Roman soldiers unknowingly take an object of the curse and fashion it into a crown, unknowingly representing the king of kings who's come to deliver us from that curse. And even in the midst of Jesus' suffering, God showing up, demonstrating his love and the glory that is to come. Jesus suffered physical pain. He suffered the emotional pain of, of guilt and shame. But finally, Jesus suffered spiritual pain.
He's undoing wrong. He's responding to the problem of sin. He's showing us the way forward in pain and suffering by making things new that had gone wrong. Just as Adam and Eve are separated from the presence of God, just as Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, just as Adam and Eve are cut off from the tree of life, so here Jesus begins to reverse the consequences of sin by being cut off from fellowship with the Father and experiencing separation from his unfailing source of life and joy. Jesus begins to endure the pain of abandonment. The physical pain, the emotional pain of guilt and shame, and the spiritual pain of abandonment that our sin deserves. In Romans 3, 25, the Apostle Paul says it this way. In your blue Bible, this is on page um, 941 if you want to go there. Otherwise, I encourage you to read this later this week. I'm going to give you several scriptures here. But in Romans 3, 25 and 26, the Apostle Paul teaches us that God presented Christ as a propitiation for sin. Some translations say a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God puts forth Jesus as a propitiation, as a sacrifice of atonement. That's what propitiation means, a sacrifice that receives the full weight and consequences of justifiable anger all the way to the end. And in doing so, Jesus does that for us in our place and our behalf so that we don't have to. And in exchange, rather than the wrath of God, we receive his full and total favor. God is a real God who has real anger toward the real problem of sin, which causes us to really sin and leads to real pain and real suffering in our lives. And God is just. He won't sweep it under a rug. He won't deny it. He won't skip over it. He loves us so much that he demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ suffered and died for us. Jesus becomes the object of God's intense hatred, not of us, but of the sin that infects us. There's a difference. God's hatred and wrath is not against us. It is against the sin that we hold. 
And what we see in our scripture this morning is that Jesus takes that sin from us, holds it for us, and lovingly takes on its penalty so that we don't have to. John reemphasizes this aspect of God's loving character in 1 John 2.2, 2, page 1021. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. It's not craziness. It's not meanness. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us by sending his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It is also what we see in the teaching of the letter to the Hebrews. Page 1002, Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It is trendy in our culture and in North American Christian culture to try to avoid change or water down the aspect of atonement in the scriptures. And to try and say that Jesus was not a propitiation for our sins is not just to water down the gospel, it is to emasculate the gospel and the power that it bears in our lives. Jesus suffered physical pain. He suffered the emotional pain of guilt and shame. And he suffered the spiritual pain of abandonment, taking on the wrath of God in our place and for our sake. It's increasingly popular, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm making this a point of this. To disregard the wrath and the suffering and the substitutionary atonement of Christ because it's uncomfortable. And because of our discomfort with unjust violence against the innocent. And there's everything right about being uncomfortable with unjust violence against the innocent. But this is exactly the point of what God is doing and who Jesus is and how he is responding to the problem of pain that leads to the problem of suffering. The violence of sin that causes so much pain and suffering 
in our lives is not resolved by us. The guilt and the shame is not dealt with with greater enlightenment or better morality. It is resolved by God who suffers and dies that we might be free and live. So what is our response? How, how then do we live? I don't know about you, but I am really self-critical. I, I, I beat myself up for the things that I forget. I torture myself for the things that I do and say and think that are not right and the things that I don't do and say that would have been right. It is so easy for me to slip into self-condemnation. But what I know to be true is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But oftentimes I pull up short and stop there. And I don't realize why and how that's possible. It's because Jesus has taken on the curse and the condemnation and the, the torture and the ridicule that I want to put on myself. And every time I put that on myself, I'm saying Jesus suffered for me in vain that I can do it better than him, that I can atone in a greater way than the God-man can atone for me. And that's not helpful, that's actually more hurtful. You know what I'm talking about? So what if we stopped beating ourselves up for our shortcomings and mistake because Jesus has already been beat up for us? What if we stopped gouging our guilty conscience because Jesus has already been gouged and scourged for us? What if we stopped condemning ourselves and being ashamed of ourselves because Jesus has been condemned and put to shame for us. We do not have to torture ourselves because of our sin, which will only cause more pain and more suffering. Jesus has done it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, on his shoulders, on his back, on his butt, on his legs, on his feet, on his arms, by his wounds, we are healed because the Lord has laid on him, not us, because I have laid on him, not me the iniquity of the world. 
What is your physical pain? How are you wrestling with guilt and shame and emotional distress? Where are you going through spiritual suffering, the dark night, the desert, the loneliness, the desperation? Because you have a God who loves you. How much? This much. A God that has not abandoned you. A God that loves you enough to humble himself, to become like you, to live among us, that he might be able to sympathize with us in every way and yet remain without sin. A God who sees you, a God who knows, a God who understands great grief, who mourns when you mourn, who listens when you pray, who comes alongside to lift you up in love, to lead you forward in life, to form you in holiness and righteousness, not because of what you do, but because of what he has done for you. That's the only love that isn't going to disappoint you. That's the only love that isn't going to change. That's the only love that can't be lost. That's a love that's, that's not based on the ups and downs of life or how smart or enlightened you are or how purely or morally you live. That's a love that's for you. That's a love that's with you. That's a love that's working for your good in all things. And there is nothing that can separate you from that love. The love of God in Christ Jesus. This was a very popular refrain in the first century. And I think we ought to bring it back. What can separate us from the love of God? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Therefore, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from a love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Messiah, our King. Behold the man. Behold the God-man who loves us that much. And that's our invitation today. That we wouldn't just behold the man, the king of kings, but that we would come to him. That we would come to him and lay down our burdens 
at his feet, that we would lay down our pain, that we would lay down our guilt, that we would lay down our shame, that we would lay down our loneliness and our fear and our despair. And that as we drink the bread, as we eat the bread and drink the wine, that we would let him pick us up and raise us with him and new life to be the way for that life. That in him, we might know and experience and demonstrate that loving life, no matter what our circumstances. That he would be lifted up and that we would overcome. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as um, we come to you around your table this morning, we thank you that you know, that you know our tears, that you know our pain, that you know our frustration, that you know our disappointment, that you know our hurts, that you see us and you understand and that you haven't abandoned us. And so, Lord Jesus, again, by the power of your spirit, come to us this morning. Draw near to us as we draw near to you in the bread and the wine. As we hold out our hands and lay down all of who we are at your feet, Lord, would you grab our hands and in love pick us up that we might receive all of who you are and all of what you have done for us. Lord, we receive your grace. We receive your mercy. We receive your comfort. We receive your forgiveness. We receive your healing. We receive your freedom. We receive your redemption in our lives. We receive the hope of glory. Set our minds on who you are and who we are and guard our hearts and the knowledge of your unending, inseparable love. Thank you, Lord, that there's no hurt that heaven doesn't understand. There's no pain that heaven can't heal. There's nothing, Lord, too big for you in our lives right now. So we come to you, Lord, Help us, we pray, in your mercy, in your love, in your grace. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.